Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is August 10th. Wow, it, August is really flying by here. Um, we're going to have this out to you sometime today or tomorrow. Um, how I'm here, as always, with Andy and Tammy. How are you guys doing? Good. Really good. Tammy, how's that? Tammy, how's Montana? I almost said Wyoming. I feel like those two should be one <laughs> okay. state anyway. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> United you know, they, by Yellowstone. So people do do that, like the, where they say like North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming should just be one state. I think yeah. that's generally true. But uh, so how's how's life in the West? I really like Missoula. I might just stay here forever. Wow. Have, have you met like the four other writers that live in Missoula? <laughs> I'm in the journalism building now, so there's a bunch of people, and they're all white and really friendly. <laughs> yeah, what's the what's the whiteness uh, quotient situation there? You know, like how how white is Missoula? It is indeed as white as everybody said, and but you know, I think you still see a lot of Asians and Native Americans, and like every four days, you see a black person. Wow. You see a lot of Asians. I see a fair number of Asians here. I think they're mostly it, students, you know, or people who run businesses here. That's how I feel when I go to uh, southeast Portland, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that part of Portland where I don't see anyone except white <laughs> people who are in their 20s and 30s. And, you know, they they all kind of are the same. They're either wearing REI and, you know, have just gotten back from a hike or they're slouching and, and talking about politics. But, I mean, is Missoula whiter than <laughs> so, Southeast Portland? I know, Southeast Portland is Jay's, like, metric for whiteness in America. I, it really is. hysterical. Is. Um, I think it, yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I've, I've mostly been in the kind of, you know, more gentrified or university-dominated parts of Missoula. And I understand that it's, you know, it's, it's not like it's segregated in the way that big metropolises are segregated, but there is still residential segregation. And so it'll be interesting as I explore the outskirts. And I also want to see a lot of the reservations in the state. Um, you know, there's a lot going on that isn't white, but the visible parts of Missoula are very, very white. Yeah, it seems uh, like what, what do you do there? Are you just hiking a lot? Yeah, I've been reading Montana <laughs> books. And preparing for class and hiking. Is it? This is boring. What are you guys doing? <laughs> no, yours, yeah. yours is way more interesting than ours. I mean, and I assume Annie is in Philadelphia preparing for the semester. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're at the blase part Did, of the pandemic where everything feels like the same. <laughs> is, is that true? I feel like <laughs> we're terrible. I feel like we're in like a. I feel like everything is kind it of is, falling apart right now. But it's now. also. Um, like, nationally yeah. i guess we're at the part where there's like no hope <laughs> that anything- yeah that feels about right i'm not sure if blase we're in the despair yeah. part like right, the, the bo- resignation yeah. the boredom of despair stage of the pandemic yeah. um i went to uh i visited my parents and i drove there from berkeley which is 14 hours away and so we drove up and we drove down and you know, uh, I did both of them in one day, which I'm very proud of. But um, so I listen to a lot of I listen to That's a lot crazy. of podcasts, which I don't really do a lot of. Right? Like, do you? I, I don't. It's very ironic because we're doing a podcast. <laughs> yeah. but <laughs> That's why ours sucks, guys. We just don't know the genre. I know exactly. We're like writers who don't read. You know, we're just like, I don't read. I just tweet and I just pour out my thoughts onto you know into into Google Docs. Never read a book. Um, 
<laughs> the uh, the I listened to uh, Slow Burn, which is you know with, I listened to the I don't think it's the latest season, but the season before that with the Biggie and Tupac that Joel Anderson did, mm-hmm. which I enjoyed. I thought it was good. Cool. Um, but I also listened to Nice White Parents, which I made both of you listen to yeah. at least parts of, and because I wanted to talk about it, I think that over the past few weeks we've been talking about a lot of stuff um, that's similar in tone and topic and I think that's important because I think that's what's at the forefront of people's mind but I wanted to switch it up a little bit and talk about this podcast which was you know uh, produced and uh, read by I guess is the right word or hosted and written by Hannah Jaffe Walt who uh, I worked with for a while when I during my very short period of time at This American Life who I find to be very thoughtful and Mm -hmm. smart and careful person who has written a not written. I, I know, what's the word for pi- has produced, podcasted? Produced. Produced. Produced is the right right. <laughs> yeah. Before podcast, no, there's no word for it. Now the, <laughs> yeah. now, now the verb is podcasted. Um, she, has, she has produced a lot of stuff about school integration, school mm-hmm. inequality, especially in New York City and this this series, which I think is the number one series, right? Isn't it? Like on Apple? Whatever. It's very popular. Um and I'm sure some of you listening to it have heard it, but if not, we'll give you a bit of a rundown. It's about a school in Gowanus, an, an IS, which means intermediate school, I think, right? Like basically a middle school in Gowanus. Mm-hmm. Carroll um, Gardens, right? Carroll Gardens, Gowanus. Yeah. Cobble Hill, yep. yep. And it services <laughs> that whole a, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. much like much like Montana, Wyoming, <laughs> North and South Dakota should be one state, Forum Hill. Cobble Hill, Carroll Gardens, and go on. Bourgeois Triangle. They should, just become, Triangle they should just become one na- neighborhood. Yeah. Um, but this school services a lot of the housing projects that are in Gowanus, as well as, you know, and the story is about what happens during successive waves when white parents come into these schools. Mm-hmm. And Hannah herself has uh, her kids in a school where she is one of the white parents as well, and so there's a personal element mm-hmm. to it as well. Um, what did you guys think about about what you heard so far? Um, I listened to one episode. Tammy, you actually listened to three of them, all three? I'm caught yeah. up. But what did you think, Andy? Do you want I to start? I have the rawest impression, <laughs> I guess. Uh, I thought it was um, – the visceral reaction was uh, there a lot of the – a lot of the characters or the real life people made me uh, f- feel with feel. I, I was filled with anger and hatred <laughs> at some of the characters, which yeah, I don't know if that's the intention. And and maybe in episode two and three they unpack that a bit more. But they have some pretty uh, reprehensible. Okay, so, who, who you're speaking vaguely? Who's name, this name. I feel bad saying this, but the eleven year old kid. His name is his name is Rob. Oh wait, the eleven year old kid. I thought you were gonna go at the fundraiser. I know. Fundraiser. Yeah, yeah. Rob would the, be the, the natural the target. But is one. okay, but who's the who's the eleven year old? The eleven year old kid who was saying that all the other students in the school were bad students, and that he and he and his oh, group. Oh, yeah. status. And, yeah. 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 Okay. So to to. To keep you up, uh, there's a the Hannah interviews these kids at the school. One of them is 11 years old, and he's part of the new white students, right? So this school at some point gets funding to become a dual language school in which a bunch of like French speaking kids come into school who are mostly white. And she interviews <laughs> some of these kids in the library, and there's an 11 year old who says, uh, "Well, we'll play we'll play that part for you here." I met three sixth grade boys, white boys, new to SAS. They're sweaty from playing soccer and looking very small against their huge backpacks. 
These boys, even at 11 years old, they've absorbed the same messages. That SIS wasn't so good before. It was a bad school. The kids wouldn't pay attention, and they had, like, got to, like, zone out every little thing. And I bet they learned very little. And now, now this generation with us, I think we're doing a lot better. And I think that we're learning at a much faster pace. He and his friends, they've turned the school around. That's what he's learning. It's going to be one of like the top choices, like already in like the book, like like when you're applying to middle schools, you get like a book sort of like on statuses and stuff. And I think this school is actually like really high up in the status. Okay, Andy. Uh, nope. Okay, this kid. This kid makes you mad, huh? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I feel bad saying it because he's just eleven, and there's time to time to change. But um, no, there isn't. Yeah, I mean, it might be too late. <laughs> there isn't. <laughs> we all know this kid. It's yeah. over. <laughs> I mean, obviously, he's just a refl- he's a symptom of the larger dynamic where you mentioned Rob, the parent, um, and. His crew of new parents, they all kind of impart to their children, I guess intentionally or unintentionally, that this is a bad school. It's a predominantly mm-hmm. black school. And that they, the new um, infusion of rich white kids and rich white families, it's their job to make it better. Um, and they do so in a very secretive way. Um, and the kids are just kind of internalizing all these class slash racial um, prejudices very early on. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's kind of remarkable that he just says it so bluntly. And Yeah, I was surprised seriously. by that too. Tammy, were you surprised? I was, though. I'm familiar with this area, <laughs> both because of actually Hannah's reporting from 2015, which if people don't know, they should listen to on This American Life. She profiled, for instance, a school in Hartford, Connecticut, where they were trying to do something kind of similar. And there's a really good podcast called School Colors that's about integration in Brooklyn um, that was like last made last year that's really excellent too but Jay actually I think the first time you and I met in person we had a conversation about school integration because we were talking about how so many people around us who are white or Asian or even black but like upwardly mobile are you know kind of backpatting like saying oh yeah we're definitely going to go to public school but then when they send their kids to public school it's in like the completely race segregated gifted program or yeah. it's in, like, the one public school within the bourgeois triangle that's actually for white kids, but nobody says it, right? PS321. Okay. <laughs> Jay or knows PS9, the numbers. There are two. Nine Jay and has done research for his child, so if you guys want yeah. tips. <laughs> yeah. um, I also lived in that area <laughs> before I moved out here. Yeah. yeah Nine so and 321. I, I feel like this is the kind of thing that I get into fights over at dinner parties because I'm like, you know, we have a whole conversation around liberal, whatever, whatever, and then it just goes somewhere extremely grim when we start talking about schools. And I think the focus on, in this podcast series about white parents and white parents being the problem and the cause and the solution in some ways to, to segregation is, like, really powerful, and I hope a lot of people listen to it, as opposed to always saying, like, you know, putting the onus of these problems on black and brown communities. Yeah, so and also... Yeah, and also, like, even if you're sympathetic to that, those ideas, generally what happens is that you do a sob story about some kid who couldn't make it because of, you know, you center the story around, like, yes. the, the, the damage, you know, the collateral damage. You don't really center it around the actual people who are doing the damage, right, mm-hmm. or the people. And in this case, it's even more interesting because these are well-intentioned people by every 
stretch of the imagination. At first, maybe. Well, yeah, no, 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 yeah. no. Super, superficially. <laughs> they are the, they are yeah. people who put the, their kids into public schools that were predominantly black, and in this case, yeah. I think it was black and Yemeni, basically, right? There's a lot of kids, Someone I think, from Yemen at that school Arabic. as well. I don't know what the background. Yeah, there are um, Arab kids and and Spanish-speaking kids, and yeah, yeah, um, and that even within that small demographic of people who are like who really believe they are like doing the right thing quote unquote that uh that the same power dynamics get replicated over and over and over again and what you do is you just create small schools within a school so the reason why i wanted to talk about this was because i think well two things the first question is like did you feel tammy like when you're listening to all three episodes that something was missing within this calculus because, like, I think that one of the things that has been brought up a lot by sort of the culture warrior people and in the intellectual dark web type of places is that the problem with school and race conversations in general is that they don't, that all the calculations that you do, all the infrastructure that you set up to have this conversation, it's all blown up when you bring in Asian students. Like, you can't, like, it, it kills all the logic of all of it. Did you, did you feel yeah. that lack here? Well, I was curious about just what she was finding there because... Early on in the series, she sets up that basically we're talking about an area that has black and Latino students and a couple of like non-black, non-Latino minorities and then white people. So I didn't know what kinds of questions to ask around like interstitial minorities. Um, I think because she put that up front, I just thought, okay, well, I don't really know. There isn't like Asians aren't sort of in this calculus. Later on, though, I think in episode three, there is some sort of reference historically from a black woman who's like recounting her childhood about how Asian students were given information to go to certain schools and and enroll in certain programs that, you know, other people of color weren't. Mm. So, yeah, I was a little bit curious about it, but I didn't. I just assumed that it turned out not to be factually part of the narrative of this neighborhood. Yeah, I agree. There's not that many Chinese people or Asian people in general in Gowanus or in Cobble Hill, yes. except my friend Todd, who grew up in Co- <laughs> Cobble Hill. <laughs> Poor Todd. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the student who, is, who speaks Arabic and Turkish at home, she would be kind of that yeah. second generation immigrant, right? That's right. But yeah. Yeah, I guess it's not the we don't We don't know more about her or whether or not there's more of them. Um, right, yeah. She was I, I very guess, interesting, though. I loved that scene yeah. with her. Oh, with the, with the, when they're trying to yeah. speak French. In the yeah, French yeah, yeah, play, yeah, yeah. and, you know, yeah, the is. white kids are all high on their second language, yeah. and it's like, come <laughs> on, guys, it's French. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, uh, I was, uh, you know, all these things are choices, right? So yeah. um, choosing this type of school that doesn't have Asian kids is, you know, part of a choice to tell a story. And um, I, and you know, can it actually say a whole lot about the greater New York City public school system and the powers at play if mm. you just exclude Asian students from that is the question that I had, I guess. That's interesting. I I would say that this is that there are a large number of schools in which this is the case, that basically the population you're talking about is a white sort of do-gooding class, you know, quote-unquote, versus Latinos and blacks, and actually Asian kids aren't in that mix, necessarily. Um, Of course, there are areas where you absolutely cannot have this conversation, you know, without it. I don't know, Jay, do you also feel like it's, it would be more relevant at the high school level because of the issues we've discussed before around testing and 
you know, because I, I feel like at the middle school level, some of that stuff is a little less apparent. Um, sort of, except that the middle school kids in New York City generally go to feeder schools right. for forced dives. They're testing and, for the yeah, they're testing in, already. And a lot of white parents want their kids to go to those schools, too. Right. Because they want their kids to go to Stuyvesant as well. That is and true. And what we're, we're talking about is not really like a upper class group of white people, right? We're talking about mostly like middle class white people who can't quite afford to spend $50,000 a year to send their kids to private school um, and mm. who want to still live in the city. Uh and, you know, I, I talked to Hannah about this when I was there, and I hope mm-hmm. I'm not, like, betraying her trust here, but I was, we were talking about this a lot, you know, and I, I asked her, I was like, well, why do you think it is that all these white parents are sending their kids to public school? Do you think it's because of there's some change politically, or do you think that the message that they should be doing this is stronger? And she said that that's part of it, but most of it is demographic, and, you know, this is something that I think is incredibly true, which is that... It used to be that all these people would move to the suburbs, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That they would that they would go to Maplewood or they would go to Scarsdale or they would go to White Plains and they would send their kids to quote unquote yeah. good schools. And now young people are having kids and raising them in cities. And right. so they need to grapple with the public school system. And so in some ways, like this has been this conversation has been forced upon them and so they're doing what they can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And be- they can't actually afford to send their kid to St. Anne's, yeah. you know, which is mentioned in the podcast. And so they need to figure out some sort of alternative. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. All Andy, this, what do you think? I'm just, I had heard all these stories about the New York City school system from friends over the years, but this still strikes me as incredibly bizarre. Like, does, is anywhere else in the country like this where from middle school on, it's not about your neighborhood school, it's about this, um, not lottery, but ranked choice system? Because I think that is... Isn't the big issue here Los Angeles? Okay. Yeah, like I was just gonna say. So yeah. some of the larger is, districts. Is, is Philadelphia not? And pretty no, it's pretty much geographic. Uh, by by high school, mm-hmm. yes. But at the beginning, I, I think through middle school, it's not. As far as I know, I, don't, I, I might be wrong. Uh, it seems to me like there's two issues, right? One is, you know, this notion of is integration just going to lead to gentrification and kind of railroading the people who were already there before. That's one issue. The other issue, mm-hmm. though, is I think like the kind of free market way this gets done yeah. and the way that the parents... It's not so much like integration that's the issue. It's the way that all this uh, kind of final authority is given to the white parents because they bring the money and they have this attitude of, well, if like the French consulate or embassy gives us the money, then they get to choose how it gets spent, which is highly undemocratic and sets off a lot of alarm bells for me in terms of how academia is also structured um, in a really Mm. um, unsavory way there. And that's like, those are two separate issues, right? Like integration could happen in a more, I don't know what the way to put it is, less free market way, right? Where it's not just about like the rich people get to choose how it it happens. Well, like busing. exactly. Historically, integration was that way, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, what I was thinking was, the podcast I was thinking of was Nicole Hannah-Jones' episode on This American Life. Yeah, which Hannah, by the way, okay. yeah. Yeah, Hannah produced yeah. that. They did that together. And that yeah. was together, yeah. portraying integration as this really great thing. And so it seems kind of, I'm, I'm not sure why that's like good integration and why, the, I mean, I, I, have an, I have an idea, but there seems to be a difference between good integration and bad integration. 
Well, I think what Hannah is essentially saying in this is that there's two truths that happen, right? The first truth is that the quickest way to try and get rid of a lot of the inequalities in the public school system is to right. integrate it, right? At the point where you have black high school or black schools and you have black and Latina schools and you have white schools, the white schools will always get the majority of the funding. They'll always be quote unquote better and they'll be, you know, a more desirable place to go and the black and Latina schools will be worse off. Like that's just a fact yeah. of life. And that mm-hmm. um, that efforts should be done to integrate those schools. And I think what Hannah is arguing in this piece, in this uh, podcast, is essentially that the way that they do it in New York City, right, even with the best intentioned people, leads to these types of results. Yeah. So the thing that Andy was referring to before was that uh, in the episode, there's this guy named Rob, who I think is a great <laughs> villain of yeah. podcast. Like, I can't remember getting better at somebody during a podcast <laughs> series than Rob, which is weird. But Rob is a parent who has a background in uh, in fundraising yeah. he fundraises for nonprofits, and what he does is he <laughs> starts he starts raising a bunch of money for this new school and without telling the head of the pta who's this puerto rican woman he starts another fund you know that is only for the french program and the french oh. program is yeah. most is almost entirely for black uh, not is entirely for the white kids and so the but the, he explains this stuff these choices in the most like sort of cloying shitty way like we've all met nonprofit <laughs> people like this who deep down inside are these like horrible cat like competitive capitalists who want to be loved but it's, but they can only talk in this kind of like they have like the up they have the up thing in their voice where they're like well what do you think we're you know like is this something wrong that we're doing you know and like every sentence ends with that up thing and you're just like, i'm gonna punch you in the fucking face if you keep talking like that because i know you keep lying to me you know so rob is rob is one of those people and um, the question I think that is being posed here, and um, look, I don't want to ascribe too much malice to the people who made this podcast and whether or not we're supposed to hate Rob, but I just fucking hate <laughs> Rob, um, is whether or not people like Rob are always going to, um, even within this system, divert all the funds and resources towards white kids within that school. Mm-hmm. And that whether or not we'll just basically have two schools within that school, which seems to be what's happening. Um, yeah. And so, Andy, to answer your question, I think that, yes, there is a bad type of integration that is being done and that there are other alternatives like right. busing, yeah. mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. yeah. And it, I guess I'm curious what the history is of this kind of ranked choice system that um, I guess the ranked choice is one thing and then also just like obvious in this particular case, the structure of the PTA or just mm-hmm. like fundraising in general such that these parents feel like you know, it's, it's my money. I got this money, so I get to decide how it gets spent. Like, like when did this begin? It probably wasn't always this way, I assume. And uh, like, that seems to be the real issue, right? It's not so much. Um, like, I think one could, at a very superficial level, misunderstand the podcast well, to be saying something like, "White people always mess it up with integration, and we shouldn't. We should. We just like shouldn't do it." Or, um, it's. I don't I don't think that that's true but like gifted and talented programs are another problem within it right that she discusses which is that the establishment of gifted and talented programs within schools internally segregated them and the fucked up thing is that gifted and talented programs start in the in kindergarten which I think is fucking insane yeah. Like, who, who came up with that idea, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm not saying that there aren't gifted and talented kindergartners, right. 
but like to I to to start segregating kids out at that point so even cruel. even within like you know like an ethno state is so weird yeah. like let's yeah. say every kid is the same and looks exactly the same but some of them are more gifted and talented than others like why would you do that i don't understand yeah. except to try and enforce some sort yeah. of racial segregation within the school which is i think the product of it and given that you know we can't think of a single other good reason maybe that is the point of it yeah I mean, I think in response to Andy's question in regards to the market, I mean, I think my understanding of education history is that basically that started as soon as the mandate came down that we needed to integrate schools. Mm -hmm. So in other words, like, you know, white people in their refusal in Uh, North and South and across the country, right, to participate in an actual meaningful integration created all these other mechanisms in which we have basically like market coded language, (laughs) you know, to say like, I want my kids to be with other white kids that I feel comfortable with, you know? So I think not in New York, it it looks very extreme, but I think this exists all over the country in different ways. And busing was like the, it was singular in its effort to overcome that. But that's, I, yeah, I mean, I feel that way about busing. I don't know about yeah. you guys. I mean, I know each geography, each experiment with it was very yeah. different. But that really was like a structural response, mm. you know. Yeah, and one of the things that Hannah points out in the piece, which is true, is that in the South, they actually did a lot of busing-enforced mandated integration. And in the Northeast, they didn't. And part of the reason they didn't do it in the Northeast was because they didn't couldn't imagine that they were the problem, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That, that they could, that they weren't, the, they weren't the racist yeah. co- ones. They were, like, the cosmopolitan ones who, you know, like, could listen to, like, uh, you know, Grandmaster Flash being played <laughs> on, like, a fucking boombox outside of a pizzeria. And they're like, I can't possibly be racist. Yeah. I'm taking in the heartbeat of the city. The soul of the city is mine. This morning I ate fucking dim sum, and then I, you know, and then I listened. I saw some kids break dancing. And then I had, you know, I went and had an empanada from my friend Juan, you know, at the fucking corner. And then I went to the bodega. Like, that's basically the mentality of the white New Yorker and that that, that, that contributed to them not doing. Now, in the South, where I am uh-huh. from, right, we did have integrated schools. The idea that the schools wouldn't be integrated was preposterous. Yeah. You know, like in Charlotte, North Carolina, for example, they did a busing program for many, many years that went on all the way until I was in high school, where my friends who grew up in Charlotte, some of them grew up grew up in the black side of town, which is generally like south and west Charlotte, I think, and the the rest of the town, which is almost entirely white, would be living within like 10, you know, like 10 blocks of a high school and they would have to get on a bus to go 45 minutes to another high school, you know, because they had forced integration. And that worked. And then they got rid of it and now the schools are completely segregated again. Wow. Um, I mean, it did happen in the Northeast, right? I mean, it it just like, it ended up being as violent as we picture in the South, right? So Boston's the famous one, If you look at those history, exactly, like Savage Inequalities or Common Ground or whatever, right? Those books, it's like, holy shit, we're talking bricks through windows integration, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think to Jay's point, that's, to me, that that is my understanding of this history, you know? And I... I don't know. I mean, I I live in what Jay has previously called the White Projects of Brooklyn, <laughs> which is like a large apartment complex where there's it's a lot one of my of, it's one of my great terms. I think, this is I, you know what I think Eddie Jay's Wong. Genius. I think Eddie Wong said it to me first. You know, oh, so okay. I want to take credit to it because he used That's to live near hilarious. the White Projects, and we were walking by. He's like, "Those are the White." Pro-. I think this is it. I think Eddie said, "Those are he the White Projects," it. and I started laughing. And I was like, "Those okay. aren't the White Projects." Yet. <laughs> <laughs> so Tammy, can you explain what the White well, Projects are? Okay, I mean, I only bring this up because. So I live in an apartment complex of 1,200 units in Brooklyn in a neighborhood called Clinton Hill, and 
there's a lot of it's a it's a black neighborhood historically black neighborhood and i would say like our apartment complex is still extremely mixed but there's a lot of like do-gooding whites and asians like me basically and what i was going to say is that in that neighborhood i think there are a lot of white parents who basically could be the subject of mm. hannah joffy waltz next you know <laughs> season except that i think they're trying to do it slightly better like First of all, they have less money than Rob. Um, <laughs> but also, I think they're interested in organizing in a way where they would never create a new PTA. Okay. You know, where they so would actually think- come in with deference to the communities that have been there and actually try to be a good neighbor. I think this is possible. And But, but are any of them in that position right now? They because are I now, think, yeah. I think, okay, because I think yeah. things change once your kid is there oh yeah no I hear you this is not theoretical this is people whose kids are aged you know five to you know 10th grade you know I'm talking about so they are playing with this like in Fort Greene Clinton Hill which is like and I think maybe it's a little easier there because that's like that's a historically like middle class black neighborhood and maybe the class part changes that a little bit you know but I would say I want to say that these experiments are underway and there are probably places where people are doing it better Hmm. what do you guys think have you seen it I think everything changes once your own kid. I mean, I, I believe what you're saying about the the resonance of the of the nice white pro- of the nice white <laughs> projects. <laughs> um, but uh, I do think that things change once your kids are going. I mean, I've experienced it myself. You know, like I'm sure Andy has as well. Um, it's very difficult, and this is a choice that many parents are given. And we should just be honest about it. It's very difficult when you're given two choices, right? And you're saying this one is more moral, in a way. And this one, your kid looks happier and the facilities are nicer and the teachers, there are more teachers per student. It's very difficult to choose the former, you know. Mm. It's very difficult to say, especially in a place like New York where a lot of those spaces are going to be diverse, quote unquote, anyway. You know, like a lot of these private schools are super diverse, you know, like in terms of race. And if that's all you think about is, like, is it racially diverse? Is my kid going to, like, wear a fucking daishiki and do, like, a drum circle on Wednesday and then have, like, sushi Asian night on Thursday? Like, like that, all that stuff is, is you could go to Berkeley Carroll or you can, go to, you can go to Packer and have all that. Yeah. You know, in some ways, it's way more diverse than a school that's 98% black, for example, yeah. right? Or, yeah. uh, or PS321, which is 70% white. Um, right. It's very hard to choose something that you but think you're doing. But the class part, because, like, you know, I think, like, for the three of us, class is important, yeah. you know, and I I would never want, I don't have a kid right now, but I would never want to have a kid go to a school where it was just all rich people. Yeah. But, I mean, this question of what's moral, I don't know. I think one person can change the structure, and if your attitude is it has to be a government intervention to have a busing program, then, I don't know, like... I don't want to be too I don't want to be totally cynical and dismiss those concerns but I do kind of think like if the problem is the structure and the failure of the government then like that's the problem it's not necessarily but that's individual also, responsibility. that can be changed yeah sure sure no but that's not that's not a permanent condition and I think like we're not just talking about one random parent right. going to a school we're also talking about what that parent can do to organize in their community right so yes I agree that like one isolated consumer choice isn't necessarily going right. to mean it, but I think like it's also the work, the labor of organizing that is required by that decision, if you yeah. mean it. So sh- short you know? of, so that's work. But though. short of bringing back busing, what are 
busing-like options that are on the table. This well, <laughs> I just want to point out that Andy is our podcast authoritarian. That like every every conversation that Tammy and I have about individual choice and what people should do, Andy's just like, yeah, but what we should do is just have the government mandate all of it. In this case, Andy, I actually think you're right. I mean, like, I so agree, just from, but... a, from my personal experience, I you know I don't maybe this is weird or something, but you know uh, we lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts for a lot of my childhood, and then we moved out to the suburbs, which were bust remember i saw these visceral uh memories of of the kids get, getting off we called it, it was called bus uh-huh. one and they would get to school at and you know those kids would be bussed in from from roxbury or and from black neighborhoods in boston they would be bussed out to to sudbury which is where we lived at the time um mm-hmm. and and even in cambridge i mean cambridge was actually much more diverse yeah. back then and so i don't think there was a need for busing yeah. but so we would have the Metco kids, that's what it's called, the Metco program, come in and they would get off the bus. And, it, you know, you just have this line of black kids getting out and, uh, you know, kind of filtering into the sea of white kids, right? I th- but I think, like, the power of having, like, truly do-gooding, like, organizing parents come into a, sy- a system to try to, like, experiment with that change is, like, that is a path to busing. Like, busing doesn't happen yeah. in, a, in an abstract, right? So, like... I think there needs to be a constituency that understands what the good of integration can be to then lobby and lead for that, right? So I I guess I'm just thinking about, you know, what it means as an individual to try and then to use that experience to enact structural change. But I think this podcast Mm -hmm. is also like a cautionary tale of what grassroots busing can look like, right? And when, when parents try to do it themselves, Grassroots bus? You mean grassroots? You mean like grassroots integration? integration. Right, right. Well, yeah, basically a non-state version of integration yeah. that winds up, you know, heavily concentrated in one, in, you know, for one party. Absolutely, right? but I think like there, the difference is attitudinal and intentional, right? Because these people, they had no intention of respecting what was happening before. I think. Well, I think part of the story is that they were well, in, you know, at least they said they were well intentioned. Sure. I, I think they were well intentioned. I don't. I think they're they, cl- I think they're closer to your neighbors in the white projects than you're giving them. I, I, I they actually say, are your neighbors. I would never be friends. With Rob, they Rob might actually. Have to track down yeah, Rob. Rob, Rob, notwithstanding, I think a lot of these parents are. Yeah, Rob probably lives in the white project. I'm gonna look up. I'm gonna look up Rob's address. I if really if he lives in the white projects, I'm no, gonna. No, guys, that's not first. Of all. We'll dox him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 I don't look, know Tammy, I don't. I don't. I disagree with you, Tammy. I'm with I'm with Andy. I think that any sort of machinations towards uh, you know trying to figure out what the better version is is always going to end up with some piecemeal solution, and it's like they're building this like very intricate castle of good intentions. When in reality, what you need is you need a fucking bulldozer and you need to drive a bus over yeah. the bulldozer and take some kids and put them in another school. And I don't know how you do that without saying all these solutions are bad except for busing. Yeah, I think. Yes, but I agree with, I mean, I'm not disagreeing on the solution, but first of all, I think these people are terrible and that they're different from the people that I'm talking about. Anyway, but beyond that point, I think that like... It, it, Tammy is running for president of the White Projects uh, co-op board and she can't afford... She can't, can't return from... Rob's vote. Oh yeah, she God, can't Rob's return vote. from Montana and have all these white parents mad at her. Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't know. I agree with you guys, but I think like there are steps to getting a bulldozer going. And yeah. like, what does that look like? That's going to be sloppy as hell, you know? But there are better and worse ways to do that experiment. 
I, the last question I had about this, which I actually find to be, you know, um, I wanted to start with this, which is that there's all these stories now about how people are moving to the suburbs, right? That um, people are leaving New York City. I think it's a little overstated, <laughs> but I think because, but you know, if, if these families and most of the people who move and most people who buy houses are people with children, their families, if they move out to the places like, you know, Maplewood, Bergen County, all these places that have quote unquote good school systems, I do wonder if there's going to be like a reversion of this thing, you know, like will all the white parents who are, you know, quote unquote, sacrificing to send their kids to public school, mm-hmm. are they just going to move back? Or are those all those people just going to move to the suburbs? Hmm. Is that the population that will move to the suburbs? I think yes. So I think maybe some of this is kind of moot. Oh, God. Um, wow. That is, is like super so grim. So resegregation or re- reinforced segregation in the city. White flight too. <laughs> Right? Holy like, shit. how could it not be? I mean, who's gonna, mo- who can afford to move to the to Maplewood, New Jersey, or I don't know why I keep saying Maplewood, but you know that's that's because where we were thinking about moving, <laughs> or Sa- South Orange, New Jersey, it all comes out, or or Scarsdale, yeah. New York. You know, yeah. like these right. are not places that like a twenty six year old media professional can right. move to, or or should want to ever move to. You move to those places if you have a yep. kid, you know, and you want yeah. the kid to go to school. Um, all right. Uh, Second topic of the day, this is our new structure, is that Andy, like, uh, who, is, who, is, who is Adam Tooze? Because I saw you Yeah, Adam Tooze is, he's kind of, I don't know, he's kind of a celebrity. You guys haven't seen him on Twitter before, public writing. He writes for, like, I'm, I'm, I read I'm, him quite I'm, a I'm lot. Asking, I'm asking this discursively as, <laughs> as, as to, to try and introduce the listeners he's a, as a, sure, it is sure. a conceit. We have to play within, along. Yeah, but yeah, I guess I don't, I don't have a sense of... <laughs> How people are not in my universe. So Adam Tews is a professor of, I believe, German history at Columbia University, but he's really prolific. He, I don't know how he does this. He writes something for, like, yeah. London Review of Books one day and then something for Foreign Policy magazine the next day. Um, he's just, he has his hands in everything. Um, well, and his book is, like, a bajillion yeah, pages. I have his first book, which <laughs> is, like, eight, nine, 900 words on, like, the Nazi German economy. And... Uh, <laughs> I have not cracked that one yet. Uh, and, and then he's come out with like 800 page books about like the financial crisis every two years, the last few years. So he's like <laughs> a public intellectual. Okay, and what, what you you found something he said to be very interesting. So um, what, what was that thing that he so said? The, I, t- I tweeted this out earlier. There was a quote, there's a long interview he has with New York Magazine um, with Eric Levitz, who I think, I, I, I like his stuff in New York Magazine. And so he was interviewing Adam Tews about the pandemic and the, how to uh, how to use history to understand it. And at some point, uh, Adam says, I guess Eric asks him, what is the role of history in trying to understand all this? And Adam asks, Adam says, uh, well, the role of the historian is the same as the role of the journalist, which is just trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Uh, and then he kind of goes on and kind of draws these distinctions between uh, different attitudes that historians could have towards the present. And I think this is kind of interesting because I, it might just be because, you know, we're on Twitter all the time. I feel like there's like a melding now that social media has made possible where people are like in the academy and out of the academy are sort of all sort of mixing together in, on Twitter, predominantly, I guess, more than Facebook, um, uh, where a lot of historians are writing, a lot of academics are writing for the public and you do have these different genres of how do academics write for the public because we're not trained to do this. 
And I think a lot of the natural impulse, let's say if you're a historian, is to say, like, how am I going to talk about COVID-19? Well, the easiest way to do it is to talk about my own research. And yep. a lot of times <laughs> these, these usually take like the, the form of long threads with a lot of citation, yeah. you know, and they all start <laughs> with like, you know, uh, y'all, I want to <laughs> tell you about X, you know, and I'm, I promise you I'm not doing a racist voice here. I'm doing the voice that for some reason a lot of academics take on like this kind of like weird thing. Pigeon A A V E type of, yeah, or maybe it's folksy. Maybe they're doing yeah. fucking like uh, Garrison Keeler and yeah, exactly. That's how I read it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I read it as like quasi racist, but they, uh, <laughs> but they, you know, so they do these threads, and the threads are all really interesting. Andy, I will say that as somebody who is not in the academy yeah. and as a journalist nominally, that I actually, I, I love this shit. I've, I actually find it to be the best part of Twitter is when I read this stuff. Okay. But like, so uh, what, like, what are some examples? Well, um, I, I thought all the stuff around the sixteen nineteen, pro- yeah. the sixteen nine. I don't know why I intoned it that way. The sixteen nineteen project was fascinating. Like it, it was historians going back and forth on either side, talking about this one instance in history, and then also talking about labor movements that you know went around uh, around that same, not around the same time, about a hundred years yeah. later. And that because that was another point of contention. I thought it was all really interesting. But but here, I want to read from the part that that twos. Um, and and Eric Levitz are talking about because uh, and then I, uh, Tammy, I want you to respond to it, which is that you've spoken a lot recently about the ways that historical analogies are routinely misused, noting that their present crisis is not in fact a sequel to 1914, 1929, or 1940 rather or 1941, but rather quote something new under the sun. Given the extreme novelty of our present circumstances, both proximate in terms to the COVID crisis and general. In terms of the Anthropocene, what is the utility of history? How can historical knowledge be proactively or productively brought to bear on the challenges of the present? Or is your vocation... Okay, anyway, the rest of it doesn't matter. Annie said, like... (laughs) Then, and Adam says, right, I believe we're living in historic times. The challenge for me as a historian, as it is for you, a journalist, is to figure out what the hell is going on, and so on and so on. Yeah, okay. So, um, Tammy, I, I know that I told you that you won. I, Andy, I think I cut you off there. What were you? Well, yeah, I guess the question you, is, this is saying? something I've been kind of weighing in my head. And I'm as a historian, I guess I'm curious what your guys' perspective is from the other side. Right? <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm curious how much you guys read history, which apparently a lot. Like, Tammy's reading Adam Tews and Jay's reading all these Twitter threads. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I do think there is, like, a distinction between history as antiquarianism. And, like, the extreme example mm-hmm. would be, like, my job is to figure out what people ate for breakfast in 1950. Um, and like mm-hmm. to be a good historian is to get as close as possible to reproducing the past. Um, and the flip side would, uh, would the flip side is what I think Adam Tooze is saying here is like, I don't care about that. I don't care about memorizing facts and, you know, a- facts and dates. And I, do- I definitely don't care about creating this um, bifurcation, I guess, between the past and the present as if, well, I don't know. Maybe that's what he's saying. As if he's saying that um, that uh, every that everything the historians will like historians. I think this is kind of a professional defensiveness, where they would say something like, "You guys all think this is something brand new in 2020, but in fact, in 1940 um, or 1918, let's say, right, we already had the Spanish flu, and all the exact same things yeah. happened. Uh, and so, therefore, you journalists don't know what you're talking about." And Right. There might be some intellectual validity to those claims, but I also kind of, a lot of the times I kind of feel like this is just like turf, right? 
This yeah. is like my yeah. job matters. Um, at a time when you know our jobs, like probably all journalist jobs, right, are kind of increasingly under ec- economic um, pressure. Um, but I, I was just curious what you guys thought about that idea. Like, why? In what in what sense do you guys ever think about like reading a history book to write a story, as opposed to just mm-hmm. saying like that doesn't matter. What matters is like the facts and the quotes and the um, and and the reporting I've done. So, like, two says right quote. The task is not, you know, knowing a lot of data set, uh, about a data set of things that happened in the past so that you can spot the analogies and then tell everyone how it really works. That may be one way of thinking about what history does, but it implies all sorts of weird assumptions about how history works. Assumptions that are, to my mind, repeatedly, catastrophically refuted by the protean quality of what we call modern history. Okay, Tammy, w- what do you think about that? I, I really liked the way Adam Tews discuss this and I think it speaks to why he is a public intellectual of some force like why people listen to him and care because he doesn't do this sort of like I told you so-ism that Andy was just outlining as antiquarianism you know I think he's open to certain analogies like just getting things disastrously wrong but still being points of reference and I think that's really helpful this conversation also made me think about something I've been obsessed with for quite a few years which is that I think on some level like journalists and historians really need each other but we're always at (laughs) war with each other (laughs) like both in our practice and in our kind of social standing or turf so I think like with the demise of journalism as like in the political economy of journalism we can see that a lot more intellectuals from the academy are like doing journalistic work and that is like kind of a threat to us you know but we can also do things that historians cannot do you know and I think like the practice of journalism is like very important I think also like Annie to your question of like how much we read history like we read a ton of history and I think like for the kind of long article that Jay will write or I will write like you're reading books like you're not just like reporting and talking to people but you know Mm. at the same time like you're trying to speak to a moment like you're trying to do things that will be relevant and that you're trying to capture contemporary voices. Yeah. So Jay's kind of smirking. I don't know. Um, yeah, but, you know. <laughs> your process is much more in depth than mine. I mean, I think I don't totally believe you because I know that you read a ton. But anyway, you know, I think. Um, but what I was interested in and I would love to hear you guys talk about is. For instance, like the thing that I've been debating with friends a lot over the since the Trump administration is like, is this fascism? Yeah, is this yeah. like the 1930s? Like that just yeah. keeps coming over and over yeah. again. And I'm just like on some level, I'm like. It, the right answer to this is like unknowable and doesn't even really yeah. matter, but we need to process like the facts on the ground. Yeah. And that I think is what Choose is saying. Yeah. So I was sure. curious what you guys thought and what like things have brought Wait, up. Can I you. really quickly ask, and I, I'm not trying to say this in a hostile way, but when you say journalists sure. can do things historians can't, can you be yeah. specific? Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, we, I mean, I, reporting. Okay. Like talking to people, like following people around. Like this is the more in academia, I think, our work replicates or is very much closer to like sociology or anthropology. Yeah. There's certain, of course, historians use those methods as yeah. well, but I think journalists do something really special, and I think it's really important and different than what you can do in an academic setting or in, on an academic timeline. Okay. I, I think that the some of the resurgence of history is uh, into these spaces is because of the specific structure of online conversations which mm-hmm. is that like if you can link to something that proves your point then uh <laughs> you have more weight right i see this all the time where see, um yeah. now like everyone's like do you have any evidence or to back up your <laughs> yeah. claim i'm just like i'm just fucking 
make trolling yeah. here shut the fuck yeah. up you know evidence like i'm not looking this shit up you know? <laughs> but the people who do and if they come from citations you know, if they can yeah. put like a fancy school by their name right yeah, then, then there's a huge amount of authority that is placed on what they're saying because the general modus uh, i don't know if that's the right word but the general you know, know expect expectation of a Twitter thread is that it's stupid and that it's you know not worth publishing in a somewhere and that it's just kind of off the top of the heck dome, and so when you have these things that are <laughs> sort of like kind of cited from people who are have a reputation of being thorough, then they carry a lot of weight with them. I think that's part of the reason why they do so well is because mm-hmm. like they're they're sort of the high quality tweets, yeah, <laughs> you know, from high quality sources. Yeah. And uh, they can be totally full of shit, yeah. as they obvious as they often are. But people take them more seriously than other yeah. than other things. It's like when and so, I find that that I actually don't like that. Like I wish Twitter was a little more chaotic. <laughs> but I, 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 as I said before, I actually do appreciate when I think that somebody has put a lot of effort into yeah. it. Um, and uh, the idea that they would write a journal article in a historical journal and I would ever read it is like, <laughs> you know, and yeah, so if it's true. retweeted a lot on Twitter, then then I'm going to find it and I'm going to think about it in an interesting sort of way. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, I actually I kind of to your question, Andy, which is just like, is the role of the historian to figure out what somebody ate for breakfast in like 1850 or, or is it to uh, you know try and synthesize what was happening back then and have it bear on what is happening now I actually kind of like the former <laughs> yeah because you're They're someone has hipster you don't want to you don't want to you want to well, be ahead of no one has a hipster I don't know what hipster means in that context but like um, I don't know if like I don't I think it has to be someone's job to try and faithfully <laughs> go into archives and figure all this out and to not just construct yeah. uh, history backwards to try and prove a thesis that yeah. they came into the project thinking, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that's a lot of the stuff that I see now involving yeah. history. Is right. that it is to prove a central thesis that is something like you were saying, Tammy, and I think this is basically the central question around history is is this fascism, right? right? Like, yeah. is this fa- are we in a fascist there, state? We saw it during the Bush, George first George Bush administration, you know, like with Cheney, like right. we see it now. And I find that just personally like a very uninteresting question yeah. Yeah. myself. And I actually think it is destructive in I some sorts of ways. Yeah. Because it was right. like I remember I would go to these protests and there would be like uh, for the child detention stuff and everybody had signs mm-hmm. and it was like uh um, you know, these are concentration camps. And I'll never forget, we were walking across, like, uh, Broadway in the mm-hmm. 30s, I think, and some guy was like, you don't know what a concentration camp oh, is. Boy. You know, this is disrespectful to concentration camps. Yeah. That whole debate took Holy up so shit. much oxygen in that, yeah. right? It's just like, well, why can't we, you know, like, what is the point yeah. of constantly alluding back to this atrocity, one atrocity in history, yeah. um, and, or other atrocities in history? Why can't we say that, the act of separating a five-month-old child from the mother and then losing track of where the mother is is monstrous in itself. To answer your question, I don't think it's that we should stop trying to make those connections. I think the thing that is strange to me is that if somebody finds like a piece of evidence that shows that in 1938 or something like that, that the Nazis were separating children from their mothers, right? then that, the point of posting something like that is to try and bring the moral urgency even higher to what we're... Right seeing today 
And I don't think that that kind of connection really works, right? Like, I think that if we honestly think about what America is doing on the border, or was doing on the border, yeah. it's probably still is doing on the border, that we should already see a humanitarian crisis, right? And that, um, that I think that there is this thing where now history has become so f- fraught and has so much weight in the way in which we make moral decisions now that it almost feels like you have to clear a certain threshold of historical references to try and make sure that the thing that you're talking about is serious or not. Yeah. And it's strange mm-hmm. within a country that is changing so quickly that is diverse in a way that almost no other country in the history of mankind has ever been diverse, right? right? To try and make comparisons with countries that are ethnostates or <laughs> stuff like that, you know? Like, it's just strange <laughs> to me. Like, uh, and I don't know. I guess I did find that true as well when I was reading all the debates about the 1619 Project, right, which was just like, well, in the end, what is the, what, what are we, yeah. if we choose a side here, like what side are we choosing? Yeah, mm-hmm. that was, And the way that a lot of it was phrased was like, you're either a racist or anti-racist, right. you know? And that, that sort of extrapolation, with all due respect to the people who did the 1619 Project, like, you know, I just don't understand that. I, I personally, as, a, as, a, as an individual consumer and thinker, I just don't understand that that split but that does feel like how mm-hmm. it was split yeah. or are you basically it comes down to are you pro or against reparations that was a lot of it at, at least the economic argument um that has been around for the last you few years right mm-hmm. like is it was was wealth in this country the product of like not exclusively but the majority the, the product of black labor or not right. and um yeah i mean i I yeah I got I kind of what was that last summer I I spent all summer just reading these debates and uh, mm-hmm. I think it's interesting like I think a lot of people who are reading these debates no one would actually say what it was about in terms of the contemporary significance right it was always because I guess people don't want to be accused but of you racism you don't think it's possible you don't think it's possible to support reparations and also think that like, yeah that, that, that's that, what like, I, was I don't think say. that it, I don't I think that that I don't think it is that simple, you know? I, I think that you can, th- th- this is why we go back to the thing about, you know, why I think it's important for some historians to just figure out what someone was eating for breakfast in 1850, is that, like, I don't want to be forced into that choice based off of, like, you know, whether or not I believe something that might be historically inaccurate, you know, and make a moral choice based entirely off of, of that. I think I would rather just have, like, the facts in front of me, and I think I would still support reparations, even if I think that, like, fucking... Gordon Wood is right, you know. <laughs> like, um, that that's that that's possible, but that you know now it doesn't see it yeah, does sure. seem like every question is posed in that sort yeah, of way. Sure. Okay, Tammy, what, what were you going to say? Yeah, no, I that's actually the point I was going to make. That I think you could have a contrary view on the the framing of that historical moment and the causality, but still believe that yeah. reparations as policy today is effective. Yeah. I think what for me from my standpoint, I think reparations or some sort of race-based understanding of economics was, uh, I think what was happening is historians are taking this sort of contemporary 21st century moment, there's like this new found, this new discovery of this category of racial capitalism, right? Which has been around for several decades or if not like centuries, right? Um, And someone on Twitter said this, I thought it was true, we could turn the tables around instead of saying that um, 
stuff from the past is influencing how we see the present. It's more like obviously our present is concerned or influencing how mm-hmm. we understand history. Yeah. And I think that yeah. is, and that could be a good thing. I'm not necessarily, you know, assigning a value to it. That's clearly what is on the minds of the 1619 project. Like why in 2020, yeah. Yeah. I guess you could argue the four, four, you know, 400 year anniversary or whatever, but obviously there's this kind of time question. Why yeah. um, on this date of all dates are we reading about 1619? Um, well, it was the 400th right, anniversary. Right, right. But like, right that was you know. the... Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I agree, I yeah. agree. Yeah, like, it is a reflection of a changing of, of power both in uh, media, right, and in journalism, but also within the academy in which there is finally saying, like, we're going to do it this way now, yeah. right? And yeah. I think the authors of the project and the people who are involved in it would say, well, we're not being prescriptive. But, you know, like, I think that there is a way in which they are being prescriptive. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. I just think they have to say that so that people don't accuse them of being, like, indoctrinators <laughs> or something like that. But um, I don't know. I, I, I guess, like, it, is it, is, how, how influential is this thing with it? Or how big has this debate been? Is this, like, cha- is the debate over the 1619 Project changing the field of history? I think... Because from my perspective, it really does seem to be. I think it is uh, not necessarily 1619 wow. itself, but the debate over race and capitalism, which I thought we were actually going to talk about more with the school um, segment number one, but we could talk about it again. But uh, that the, We did a yeah, little bit, but yeah. Which uh, to me seems to be like the only thing that's ever, that we can ever talk about in this country, which is like race versus class, right? Um, right. And there was like another... I don't know if it's intellectual or just like on social media debate among journalists and uh, academics in Descent magazine last week over this category of racial capitalism. So it, it does oh, seem yeah. to be mm-hmm. like it's in the air and for better or for worse, mm-hmm. it seems to be coloring, I think. No pun intended. <laughs> Edit that out. Structuring uh, <laughs> a lot of the discussions in the academy. Um, historians in particular, but we could broaden this to just the academy in general. I think because uh, it's the question is not it's not a historian question. It's like the people who are who came up with these categories of racial capitalism or the black radical tradition. They were you know they were political thinkers. They were activists. They were in social sciences, um, and you know very clearly like history is just kind of being used or operationalized um, for these for these political claims. I think it is. I think it's. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I think I think it's definitely on a lot of people's minds. Um, I'm not sure if the project, the 1619 magazine itself is actually gonna be taught very often. Like I think in a lot of- But they made like a bunch of curriculum. Yeah, uh, especially for high school students. Yeah, Tom Cotton doesn't want that to happen. (laughs) Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, I mean, would you guys, I mean, when when you guys read that, would you you think like this would be great to replace what I read in high school or to what I read in middle school? Hmm. Tammy, what do you think? I think I was, I think I'm pretty dissatisfied with the history education I received. (laughs) Um, So I think as a supplement to like the staid textbooks I was exposed to 30 years ago, like certainly it would be quite nice. I mean, I think a tangent to this conversation, which I think has been interesting, when Nicole Hannah-Jones defends herself against the criticisms of historians is her, her Statement. Well, I'm yes, I'm not a historian. I never. I'm not a historian. I never right. said I was a historian. This is a storytelling project, and the mode of essayistic storytelling is different than the historical one. And you know, I think that's. Uh, we could have all sorts of quibbles over, over the facts, but I think that also is some is yeah. true. 
And I'm interested in that too. Like, what does it mean to be in a certain mode or a certain style? I mean, the work that we're doing is different than the work that yeah. historians are doing. And so, but, you know. That was a, that was, yeah. I thought that was a, yeah. I, I, I remember she tweets this, right? And I think that was a little bit of having it both ways. Because I think the, right? Because I think a lot of the big part, the big claim of 1619 was we, we consulted all these academics at sure. Princeton, yeah. basically. <laughs> like three people from Princeton. Yeah. Um, yeah. And fuck Princeton. <laughs> <laughs> they cause a lot of problems. Yeah. No, no, I'm just yeah. kidding. I mean, I, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't look. It, it, and to be fair, this is they intended as a supplement. It's not like this becomes right. a history history curriculum. And I'm like, I'm with Tammy. I mean, I went, you know, like I said, I went to big high school in the South, and we, our history teacher in 11th grade in U.S. history would jokingly, quote, unquote, call it the War of Northern Aggression, right. oh my you know, God. like the Civil War. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not saying that I received some sort of, like, white supremacist history, but yeah. we certainly were on the Shelby Foot side of the Shelby Foot uh, Barbara Fields debate <laughs> from the Ken Burns documentary. Yeah. You know, we're like, well, this, it was about state rights, you know? It was about, like, it wasn't all about slavery. It was about economics. Like, this is was in my head when I went to really? college, you know? And, like, mm-hmm. yeah, because it's the fucking South, you know? And yeah. it was 1996 wow. or whatever, it's not like, you yeah. know, and I don't think that that would fly anymore. And I think that's because of work like people like the, you know, like the Princeton historians that we talked about. But I, I also think the other side of it, though, is that like, um, I don't know. I, I don't, the other, I, I, the other that I have about it, it's just that like, I actually think that there's, um, that there's too much emphasis on history right now. And Andy, I don't mean to like sure. insult your profession. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, I think right. that like at the point where it is so in, and I'm just talking about in journalism, right? Where there is a style of writing now that is preferred in which everything has to be just wrung through with all the context of the time and it makes everything yeah. very very long. In documentary filmmaking and this is one of the best documentaries ever made, but it has spawned an entire population of imposters that are terrible is the OJ documentary, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. so to tell the story of OJ Simpson, you do have to talk about the LAPD, yeah. you know? Yeah. You do have to talk about, like, what happened in Watts in 1965, right? You do have to talk about the history of the black athlete. All that stuff is amazing in that. And now, because of that, right, every fucking documentary is just like, let me tell you about what happened around this time. And you're just like, <laughs> I, I actually don't need to know this. I only watch this so that I could see archival footage of this really fast guy running, you know, <laughs> or this guy, or this guy, or this guy playing beautiful hockey. Like, I actually don't need to know about all the history, you know, what was happening, the yeah. historical context of like fucking Winnipeg, Canada. Yeah. And like, I, there's no actual example that I'm thinking of here in my head. I'm just making yeah. it up. But like, and I'm thinking of like a random <laughs> hockey That first player. episode <laughs> of the OJ Doc was, I thought, one of the best, um, Produced oh, it's forms of history I've ever seen. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah but the, in that beautiful. sense, it's it's relevant now. There is an expectation that you will do yeah. that in ways in which maybe yeah. it is not necessary, and it has also um, it is also in journalism, yeah. right, Tammy? Which is just that Absolutely. our jobs now are just to like endlessly process history. Every every single fucking magazine article has like an eight hundred word preamble about like you know like a farm. You know, it all reads like. <laughs> <laughs> it all it's reads. True. It all reads like you have like, to go uh, through an archive or something. Yeah, to like Robert Caro, you know? where they're like the Texas dirt where Lyndon Johnson was born was, you know, <laughs> imported down from on a glacier from like, like <laughs> totally. <laughs> and then when the people walked over the land bridge, you know, from <laughs> Mongolia right. to Alaska, it's like, what is going on here? Um, this is, is an eight hundred word article. Do you think this is like I mean, 
um, a breakdown between the walls of academia and journalism over the last 10 years. Like the other flip side would be like the infiltration of like data into journalism, right? Where people are, are like talking to economists. Yeah, of course. Or, yeah, right. that's the other side of right. it. Yeah, But like yeah. I mean, in general, right, it's like the sort of flattening or, or softening of these boundaries. Well, I don't, Jay, I'd be curious what you think. I mean, to me, a lot of this, as I I think I already said, is reflects a real economic anxiety in journalism Mm -hmm. and in the academy. You know, and to put this, like, extremely crudely, like, the question really is, like, what is it it that a journalist can do? You know, that an academic cannot do in a story. And, um, you know, in the same way that, yeah, or Amy's, like, like, or like drooling, a, like, or like, a, or like a doctor, for example, can't just tweet themselves. Right. right. Exactly. Can't just tweet right. Themselves. And there's yeah. always been the sort of, you know, Jerome group men or, you know, these sorts of people <laughs> who are, you know, going across boundaries to yeah. write like really beautiful public prose. But so I think like on some level, like the public intellectual journalist, like war slash cooperation has always been uh-huh. there. But I think with journalism falling apart, this is much more pronounced. Well, also the academy is falling apart. And the academy falling apart. Exactly. So everyone's kind of clamoring for a piece. Everyone wants to be heard. Academics aren't satisfied with having two people read their papers. I totally get that. But journalists are also saying like, hey, there's something that we are doing that is also special. So if you read like a long feature written by, I don't have any examples, right? But like someone who's not a journalist by profession. Have you had this experience of kind of like one percent part of you feeling like fuck, like this person did this no. without us? And no, um, I mean, like, like there are people like Jill Lepore sure, where you're yeah. just like, well, yeah. she's like a, you know, uh, she's great, and why would I ever get mad about that? I don't feel that way. I I think if the problem with academics, if you know, this is my experience as an editor, is that they're basically illiterate, <laughs> and that when you get when you get their when you get their first draft, you have to like spend a month on it because yeah. it's like like first of all they won't commit to saying anything yeah. you know because they're all <laughs> petrified and so they just everything is endlessly caveated and you say well you turn i asked you for 2000 words you turn in 6500 words and <laughs> 5500 of these words are just caveats yeah. you know and like i don't want i like, and then you're just like my eyes are crossed and i want to kill myself after reading this so how about we but then publish they're super this? attached to their prose yeah how about we publish this and never work together again? <laughs> yeah. so i think it's rare to find academics who yes. uh and it's look just, I, like this why is, do you think that is uh, it's, because because that's how academic writing is they're trained the in academic writing the project yeah. is different right how so how is the project different well, because you guys have to cite everything and you have yeah. to like, and you're in conversation with other academics, exactly. which is the, why the you caveat everything. But um, you guys are not in the business of like citing evidence and communicating clearly. What, what kind, of, kind of smooth of brain course. thing of that is that? But like just because we think academics are bad at writing, we all are, are the flip side is that we just, we don't cite any evidence. Yeah, we try and collect <laughs> evidence. I'm not saying. No, I'm, not, I, I'm, just, I, I'm just pushing I, you. I'm just. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do think that. <laughs> no, the, yeah. I do think it's. I do think they're collapsing, though. What? And I the, think the that divisions. there are a lot of acad. Yeah, there are a lot of academics who obviously could become magazine feature writers. Yeah. You know, yeah. but uh, I'm just I saying. Think I that- probably resent them more than. You <laughs> oh really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, on some level, I'm sure. Like, oh man, that could have been like a six thousand word, a six thousand dollar paycheck that would mean a shit mm. ton to me more than this person who has tenure. Oh, I see. Like, for sure. Yeah. Like, And again, I, that's why I'm talking about like the economy around yeah. this stuff, because that, that anxiety is real. Yeah. It's yeah. very real. Like, 
journalists are terrified right now. Yeah, like it's hard to make a buck, you know, in journalism. So if you see that, that's that's hard sometimes. Yeah, I would. Ra- yeah. I think I would rather be an academic. Honestly, I've been thinking about this recently. <laughs> it's certainly much more secure. Well, what would yeah, you teach? I don't know. I mean, uh, writing or something. I have no idea. Jay, I don't you could any... do a, cre- a creative writing or journalism school. Have you ever thought about that? I did think about that, but. Um, uh, it's a lot of work. <laughs> I, I went to a, I went to a, uh, I did an interview with, not really an interview, but just like an information meeting with somebody at a journalism school around here. And mm-hmm. they're like, um, they're telling me what you have to do, which is a lot of work. And they're like, well, we can't just have you come in and, you know, once a week. And if you think the job is you come in once a week and you talk to the students, you read a couple papers and you're just brilliant for an hour, that's not, this is not the job. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's what I thought the job was. <laughs> you're like, bye. Yeah, you're like, you described what I thought it was. <laughs> Thank you for being so honest, yeah. you know. Um, because that's what I thought Columbia Journalism School was, you know? Like, I, I know all these people who teach at Columbia Journalism School. That's basically how they described it to me, right? Yeah. And I think it is beneficial for the students, but um, apparently not around here. <laughs> um, all right, Tammy, you have to go. And so we're going to end here, unless you guys have something pressing that you want to talk about. Do you do a listener question or do you have to bounce? Oh, yeah, do you guys want to do a quick listener question? Let's do the listener question. Okay. Very short, a friend of Andy's named Jonathan Tang was curious if we could extrapolate on why so many upper-class East Asian Americans seem to be churched. You guys what, have thoughts on Korean this? you say Korean or East what, Asian? East what is, Asian. What does churched mean? Go to church, went to church, come out of a church that is Asian American. Oh. Yeah, well, for Koreans, it's because that's a community. But, like, why? Yeah. yeah. It's a community center. Um, and why do you think that is for people who have money? Because I went to Korean, my parents are atheists, but I ended up going to Korean churches that were populated by like relatively poor Koreans, I would say. I understood why it needed, that needed to be the case for them. I thought there was a history yeah. of, um, oh man, I'm trying to remember now. There's some statistic that was like Korean, the Korean diaspora is way more Christian than the Korean population itself in Korea. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Koreans are mostly Buddhists. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then why? Well, like, why sociologically or historically did that happen? I don't... I assume um, there's been some research on this. No? Yeah. Well, the missionary influence in Korea goes back to the early 19th century. Yeah. And, you know, that's a long tradition there. I mean, I don't know. I actually think the majority, I think it's the, that the majority of the Korean population identifies as Christian. But really, churches function in Korea the same way they kind of function here as, like, community spaces has been my impression in Korea, yeah. even though there is still a large yeah. Buddhist population, et cetera. I think it might be the same for Taiwanese people. You know, I've witnessed the same kind of churchy patterns. There- yeah. In that diasporic population as well. Uh, I have some family that were really into it at one point. It was very much, I think, part of... I was reading once about like the whole like fellowship app, like machinery that happens in the suburbs of the United States yeah. and where you know, have like a cool like 25-year-old minister who plays guitar, that kind of right. thing. That, I feel like that was more descriptive of what was going on with my cousins um, who, oh. who were like in this sort of... Maybe yeah, it's we, to get laid, you know? <laughs> we didn't really have that. We had... Uh, we had we had like, I went to the same. I went to my parents were not very devoted to it, but we would go from time to time to the Korean church, mm-hmm. and I always really hated it. My sister really hated <laughs> it too, and um, 
in in, in North, Cambridge or in Chapel North, Hill in North Carolina. Okay, um, and it was it's just like a social thing. Yeah, yeah. Right? it's like for community. My parents I are so antisocial so. that they don't actually want a Korean community, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and they're internally racist, so they don't want to be around Koreans, and so. <laughs> Uh, we didn't, as Tammy discovered, <laughs> um, the, the only Koreans my parents like are Tammy's parents who they met. They're just like, oh, who also actually- have no friends. Yeah, yeah, they're like, we actually like them. <laughs> um, it's, it's a social thing, and it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to see what the centrality of religion is within that group, right? Because you would think that it would be a sidebar and that the whole point would be about the community. Yeah. But for a lot of kids, it isn't. Like, I think that there's a big actual evangelical population Definitely. in Southern California that you know, some of my cousins are part of. And they take their religion very seriously. Yeah. But I think that's somewhat new. I think that the first generation, the first wave of people who are as old as me and Tammy and older, right, that, they, yeah. that those people mainly saw it as like a church-related social right. group. And, and business. Like, and business, yeah. But so like when I went to my cousin's fellowship once there was like this nice cool social thing but then there was like these parts where they were really sincere and pious and that freaked that scared the hell out of me because i was not a religious person so i was like i'm not coming back you guys didn't feel that when you went like you guys weren't like scared off by the actual like believing in god part i mean i used to believe in that shit so i went through the whole cycle of it and my parents were like what the hell um and now I'm like an evangelical atheist. Yeah. So I don't know. Why did I believe in that shit? I've heard some theories about how like for Koreans and other people who have like really grim histories, uh-huh. there's something really like good about the Jesus story that they cling yeah. to. You know, there's all these like kind of sociological explanations of like why that's the case. Is it going I don't, I think, down? Okay, go ahead, Tammy. I don't know. What do you off. think? I don't know. Well, I was the, the question I have for you is do you think that there's less Korean church now? Whether the parents push the religious part less because it's obviously advantageous for their kids to turn into white liberals who are generally <laughs> secular, you know? No, I'm serious. In the same way that, you know, like Judy, Jews, uh, you know, like have less stress on religion as they, as, you know, as they progress yeah, generationally yeah, right. in America. Mm-hmm. That, the Jewish question, uh, they, yeah. the, Become more secular? Yeah, that they become more secular as a way to not be like the weird church Korean, you know, which yeah. might be a little off-putting to people who's ask, who ask everyone if they're going to fucking Bible study or not, right? Like, do you think that that's happening? I have no idea. I should walk around Cal campus whenever we get back and, and start. <laughs> when ask, you get yeah, when start Bible asking study kids, invite? Like, do you go to, yeah, do, um, you go, do you still go to Bible study? And they're like, well, please don't talk to me. <laughs> what are you doing, old man? <laughs> I like the Steve Fuchevi mean with like the you know with the fucking backwards hat the skateboard uh i wonder if that's true you know i wonder i don't know what the actual numbers look like i feel like for our now that we're having kids right like we're obviously not going to force it on our kids as much but i would have to say like so if i look at my asian american friends from college almost all of them married asian americans often and most actually usually within the same ethnicity and the same religion and they're they're doing the same shit that their parents did, so yeah. that to me is extremely depressing. <laughs> but you know, because right, they didn't marry white people. <laughs> no, because they they are like they're evangelical Christians. Yeah. Oh, oh, I get it. Okay, yeah. Who are like my kids going to Yale? And it's yeah. like holy fuck, man, yeah. this is sad. Like you're supposed to be like my kid's a painter or something. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I thought you, you were know? giving like, like a I race feel like science we lost, there. You know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, I yeah. I don't. I don't, I don't know any of the kids who I grew up with in the Korean church anymore, but um, 
I, I imagine that there probably is like a push towards secularization for people who are already secular. But that just makes sense anyway, right? Yeah, It's not like we're sure. going to make our kids go to go to Korean church. I am going to make my kid go to Korean language school, though, because I didn't go and I feel robbed <laughs> from it. But That's also funny. I have this weird anxiety that America is going to completely collapse and that we're going to have to move to Korea. Right. And that um, right. that sh- it would be better for her to be, uh, you know, to be able to speak the language, um, even though I Your don't plan think. Plan B prepping. Yeah, I don't think she could ever pass as being like full Korean, but I think that she, you know, there's going to be a ton of Hoppe kids that are going to do the reverse migration if America collapses anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, w- which it might. Um, on that note, Tammy, I think you do have to go at this point. Um, thank you. F- is yes. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to our show. Uh, we are, we don't have a sponsor, but if you want to support us, you can, you can sign up. Who would up be our sponsor? Squarespace. Uh, Squarespace. Yeah, we're sponsored by Blue Apron, and uh, no, we we are a free service. We do this for you every week, and if you want to support us, you can sign up for our newsletter, which is also free at goodbye.substack.com. If you want to get in touch with us, you can DM our Twitter account, which is at TTSGpod, or you can send us an email at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. I'm getting better at remembering all of this. And, or you can just reach out to any of us individually and, and um, through our Twitter accounts and send us a DM. I think all of those are open. Uh, please keep sending the listener questions. We're going to try and do one every single week. And until next week, uh, be well. Bye, guys. 